0: Good morning, it is a pleasure to be with all of you. Uh, we were last here maybe a couple of months ago and so enjoyed seeing old friends and some of whom we, we know from incarnation or we've been in a small group with before and uh, I think we were among the last families to leave. We'll see how we do today. <clears throat> um, my message this morning is entitled, Rejoice and Be Glad. And I tell you the title on the front end because I don't start with gladness, but we get there, all right? So hang with me just for a minute. You may have heard about two years ago of a marketing campaign that a Christian foundation funded called He Gets Us. And uh, the intent of the marketing campaign was to answer the question. Um, sorry. I left my regular glasses elsewhere, so I'm gonna decide what to do with reading glasses. Um, They wanted to answer the question, why are so many people leaving the Christian faith? And the problem statement of their marketing campaign was, how did the world's greatest love story in Jesus become known as a hate group? In short, why are Christians now viewed so negatively? Russell Moore, who formerly served as the director of ethics for the Southern Baptist denomination, now works with Christianity Today as a public theologian and recently wrote an article, What's Wrong with Winsomeness? The fruit of the spirit still apply in a hostile culture, was his subtitle. And this is how he starts. A friend sent me a clip of two Christian political commentators arguing that their cultural opponents were so sinful that they had sunk to the level of the subhuman. This is demonic. Our enemies are demonic, one said. There's no turning the other cheek. There's no being winsome. Beside Moore's article, as I read on the web, I saw the current cover of Christianity Today. The first lead article was a poet for bruised evangelicals. The next article was, why are there so many angry theologians? That article began, I'll just read you the opening paragraph. What's the matter with theology today? Far from being described by the, by the string of virtues that make up the fruit of the Spirit, much of what is labeled theology is insecurity and fury disguised as dialogue or thoughtfulness. Even the most cursory scrolling of social media could lead you to the conclusion that you must be angry in order to do theology. In our day, it is not uncommon to see theology used as a weapon and not as a well of joy. I think we all know that we're living through a rate of cultural change so fast that it's hard to get our bearings. When I started teaching at a Christian high school right out of college at 22 years old, somebody thought it was a good idea to give me classrooms back then, evangelicals still had a lot of cultural sway. The moral majority had recently disbanded, but it had been around for some 20 years. And whatever you think of the moral majority, it represented evangelicals in the minds of many and had cultural force behind it. In the eyes of many today, evangelicals aren't part of a moral majority. They're part of an immoral minority. It's reasonable to feel disoriented and yet while it's fair to be concerned about the state of our culture our methods of engagement too often reveal that we've been subtly shaped by the very culture we're seeking to change our conformities revealed when we meet hostility frustration or even anxiety with simply more of the same A friend of mine recently confided that he and his family changed churches after 20-some years because they left most Sundays feeling exhausted. Their church's way of fighting the culture had worn them down. I have good news. Jesus' way is different. When he sat down on the mountain and began to teach his disciples at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, The crowd had gathered. His disciples were with him. He wasn't exactly looking at the cultural gatekeepers of his day. In the words of the great theologian Paul Simon, these were the sat upon, the spat upon, and the ratted on. But as both of our New Testament readings make clear this morning, both from Corinthians and from this passage in Matthew Matthew chapter 5, God's way of working is different than we expect. In the Corinthians passage read earlier, it's believers themselves that Paul describes as foolish, weak, low, and despised according to the world's standards. These are the ones whom God calls and through whom God accomplishes his work. We should be used to this unexpected pattern. So as we turn to the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to imagine two camps, as it were. In one camp, we have beleaguered believers. The sorts of folks that are giving voice in my opening words. Those who feel very beset, uh, besieged by the challenges of living in the culture that we find ourselves. But Jesus has in mind, blessed believers. So these are the camps. Let's look in greater depth at the first beatitude. It's on the front of your worship guide. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Since poor in spirit doesn't seem like a desirable state, we might wonder why Jesus singles this group out first for blessing. But let's reconsider What might be true of this group? The poor may more readily admit their dependency on God and their need for others. They're more likely to have a less exaggerated sense of their own importance. They may more easily trust people over things and distinguish necessities from luxuries. Perhaps the gospel is more likely to sound like good news to them than it is to those who think they have all that they need. Perhaps in short, the poor can more easily receive the grace of God. Secondly, it's vital to ask, what does Jesus mean by the kingdom of heaven that's promised to the poor in spirit? Contrary to many assumptions, he's not talking about where we go when we die. He's rather naming, in this short phrase, God's rule on earth. Jesus is inaugurating this kingdom. We read of him at the beginning of his ministry just a few verses earlier in chapter 4, verse 17 that he begins by preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he demonstrates the power of the kingdom by putting right so many things that have gone wrong in the world through healing and ministering to people with all sorts of needs and then Through teaching. This kingdom, no doubt, continues into the next life, but it starts now for believers and continues into the coming new heavens and new earth. We have one more pressing question on this first beatitude. Why are the poor in spirit in particular blessed with the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's not because Jesus is trying to motivate his disciples towards a particular virtue of poverty of spirit by holding out an unrelated but hopefully motivating promise of heaven. Rather, he's saying that poverty of spirit is simply what it takes to be in the kingdom of heaven. It's an essential disposition for all those who would live under God's reign and live in God's kingdom. What we've said here about the first beatitude is true of the others. N.T. Wright points out, the beatitudes are the agenda for kingdom people. They're not simply about how to behave so that God will do something nice for you. They are about the way in which Jesus wants to rule the world. He wants to do it through this sort of people. People actually, just like himself, the Sermon on the Mount is a call to Jesus' followers to take up their vocation as light of the world, as salt of the earth. In other words, people through whom Jesus's kingdom vision becomes a reality. What I'm trying to stress here is that we have an alternative. We can live in a hostile world and hear Jesus's resounding refrain that those of us who embody the spirit of Jesus and his beatitudes are actually blessed. The idea A blessedness here includes happiness, but it's deeper. Those in this community have reason to rejoice, even in the midst of mourning or being reviled or otherwise persecuted. They know their blessedness to be deep at the core. I'm speaking to posture We can be in the same church, in the same denomination. We could be sitting next to someone who would recite the same creed with the same kind of conviction. We would say, we we share the same, oftentimes same convictions, but we can do that with a different posture. What's our orientation towards the world? And an orientation of blessedness and seeing yourself that way means that you reside and dwell in the world with a different posture. And when hostilities come, your response is different, even though you might believe the same things as a fellow Christian with a different posture. Again, there's something ironic at play here. The very evangelicals who don't wish to concede to the culture on many well-known issues too often have conceded at the most basic level of their posture. We feel hostility in our culture. We absorb it and reflect it back. Jesus' counter-approach couldn't be any clearer as he finishes off his list of Beatitudes with a crescendo. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they prosecuted the prophets who were before you. This prior state that some of us remember of some kind of cultural presence and clout is the exception anyhow, right? What Jesus is saying here isn't something new. We shouldn't be surprised that we maybe are living in more difficult times. And Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. How do we do this? Right? Right? The offers a profound alternative, but how do we move from the camp of the besieged to the community of those who see themselves as blessed? First of all, I think it's really important to note that ethics and values are carried in stories more powerfully than propositions. It's been said that we can't answer the question, "What am I to do without first answering the prior question of what story am I a part?" The Beatitudes, like the other ethical teachings of Jesus, ring true and carry force in God's kingdom story, but they sound hopelessly pious and unrealistic in the story of our dominant culture. Russell Moore, in the article that I quoted earlier, recounts uh, times when he's, he has said to others, or he'll hear back from pastors, that they get grief if they talk about loving your enemies as if it's some liberal slogan that we've now been trained to ignore. But loving your enemies makes all the sense of the world in the kingdom story of Jesus. That's how we have to hear it. But if we're not indwelling that story, then that very saying of the incarnate Lord himself comes to us as a foreign intrusion. So citizens of the kingdom live a different story. And out of that different story, they see things differently in at least two ways. First, they take the long view. This is really important. So what I'm saying, we indwell a different story, and living in that different story impacts our perceptions, literally how we see things, how we see everything. Notice how many times in these Beatitudes, that Jesus is naming things that our culture doesn't extol, like mercy, or mourning, or hungering, and thirsting, or even being peacemakers. But in each case, the anticipated reward, it said, for they shall. The mourners shall be comforted, right? The meek shall inherit the earth. Those that indwell the kingdom of Jesus just know you got to be patient, right? Trusting God is about patience. God is infinitely powerful and resourceful, and he has all the time in the world. And he asks us to give him the time that's needed. Sometimes I think we overshoot in our expectations. Um... I used to be fond of and use language like a lot of other believers about uh, world changing, being a world changer. I'm now a little more reserved. I wonder if it sets for us kind of the wrong expectation. Uh, No doubt, absolutely, like even this passage of Scripture talks about being salt and light. But my emphasis now is changed from that to change from being a world changer to how can I be faithful? How can the followers of Jesus be faithful? Let's let the God-sized problems of the world be God's problems, because we can't bear them, and in our connected, overly connected world, we're confronted with them all the time, right? How can we bear it? Let's acknowledge that we can't. Let God-sized problem be his problems and ask Where and how has he called us to be faithful in our own living out of the gospel? Believers, we can pray daily, I hope, as Anglicans. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's done partially now, and we want to be a part of that in every way we can, but we await with faithful believers for the fullness of God's kingdom. Secondly, in addition to taking the long view, we also take the upside-down view. So, did you know that there's something called inversion goggles? I wouldn't advise wearing them. I watched some videos of people wearing inversion goggles. So, this professor, um, Ersman, I think was his name, years ago, in the middle of the 20th century, he took his assistant, Kohler, Ivo Kohler, this is in Austria, and he had his assistant wear inversion goggles. They literally turn the world upside down. Have you ever heard of this? Did you know that, this is a wonder, your eyes, your brain can get used to wearing inversion goggles? And after, I think it takes a couple of weeks. It's got to be a rough couple of weeks. Uh, after a couple of weeks, like they show this guy, the videos on YouTube, you can see this black and white video from the middle of the 20th century. Uh, this guy like doing fencing and stuff and when he first puts on the inversion goggles like he's getting clobbered he tries to ride a bike you can imagine how well that goes he tries to feed himself Uh, that doesn't go too well either but after a couple of weeks he adjusts to the inversion goggles he can ride a bike around town he can feed himself he can do fencing it's crazy we can adjust to seeing the world upside down and I think This is a good metaphor. We actually should see the world upside down. We should, living in the gospel story, expect things to be inverted. Again, that's our Corinthian passage. God called the weak things of the world to confound the wise. The wisdom of God is, uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world, okay? Okay or the incarnation look at this from philippians a familiar passage but think about this just for a moment paul tells the philippians complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord in one mind here's one of the wildest passages in scripture most countercultural upside down passages in scripture philippians 2:3 this is what paul says do nothing out of selfish ambition Or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves like who does that who does that who counts others as more important than themselves well in the world we don't expect that to happen but in the upside down world of the kingdom that's what happens because that's the story we dwell in and Paul connects this ethic this wild crazy ethic to the story of the gospel it's the cross It's Jesus who humbled himself, did not consider grasping his deity as but he gave himself up. He emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, became obedient to death. That's the kingdom story from which arises our ethic. It's as if our inversion goggles are the cross. We see things through the cross. Our ethics are anchored in the cross. By the way, you may be wondering when people take those inversion goggles off. Yeah, it takes a while to readjust. But my hope would be that we would wear our kingdom inversion goggles long enough that they're no longer foreign. We just see things differently. And it's easy to let things roll off and to not fall prey to meeting hostility with hostility. All right, so we're going to end with Psalm 37. Um, there's a few things. If you have your Bibles, maybe you can turn there. I'm going to do this real quick and tie this up, but this is cool. So, three times in our reading from Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11, we're told to fret not. Fret not, fret not, and fret not. And the antidote to fretting over and over again is to trust in God, to delight in God. The contrast couldn't be greater. Once again, it's that long view. Don't fret trust God, take the long view. It's all over the psalm. I would encourage you to read it and reread it. Now, here's one I would imagine that maybe the most commonly known verse in Psalm 37 is verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, until I really was grappling with this text in preparation for this, I never fully appreciated the particular context of that well-known verse. Before and after, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. We probably know in our bones that this isn't an invitation to a cosmic vending machine, and I've always heard people say, well, you have to delight yourself in the Lord uh, because you can't have just anything. What you want should be resonant with the sorts of things that delight God and I think that's true but in this particular context what the psalmist seems to be delighted in is in righteousness look at the verses that follow commit your way to the Lord trust in him and he will act he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. I think that what the psalmist is delighting in is that God will make good on his promises God's righteousness, our righteousness will be like the noonday. God will make good. These are the things that we're called to delight in. Now, one more thing. If you look at verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. In this psalm, you have the righteous and you have evildoers. And the one place where the two come together where the righteous risk becoming like the evildoers is through fretting. It's right there in verse 8. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. So, practical advice, one piece. Uh, Those who would have us spend time scrolling on our phones, I think it's safe to say are not generally interested in cultivating a sense of delight and joy in us about God's redeeming purposes. They know that it's rage that tends to grip us more. So there's all sorts of powers at work in our world that draw us in. Forsake it. So uh, somebody brought to my attention this wonderful tweet. Maybe it's ironic that I go to the internet for my next line. So here's here's the tweet. There's a guy in this coffee shop sitting at a table, not on his phone, not on a laptop, just drinking coffee like a psychopath. (laughs) So, one of the last things I wanna say to you is, maybe by that standard, we should become psychopaths. Maybe we should spend time in coffee shops just drinking coffee, or maybe on Skyline, looking at God's wonderful creation and focusing on God's goodness all around us. Uh, We're told the ESV version, I think you have a different version in your worship guide, but the ESV version has a wonderful um, expression in verse three. It says, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. I love that. Like that's a line worth putting on your mirror in the morning, right? Verse 3 from the ESV, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. This is what God calls us to, and to rest, to rest in him. So finally, uh, just to draw your attention back to the collect of the day. I found this really interesting. It's in your worship guide, and this is at least 350 years old. I found it in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, And here's what it says, oh God, you know that we are set in the midst of many grave dangers and because of the frailty of our nature, we cannot always stand upright. Grant that your strength and protection may support us in all dangers and carry us through every temptation through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's interesting that this particular colic says we cannot always stand upright. It refers even to posture. And um, Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount that our posture is important. And the posture of a servant, maybe standing upright in God's upside-down kingdom, is kneeling and serving. Amen.